0: the weekly appellate report for June 15th, 2018. I'm Brian Cardell. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient appellate and constitutional law questions. In May, the state high court heard argument over whether a particular consumer protection statute, the California Investigative Consumer Reporting Agencies Act, is impermissibly vague and thus invalid under the Constitution. The law regulates agencies that provide background screening information on individuals to interested parties like potential employers or landlords. It also regulates those latter parties seeking that information and allows for a range of civil penalties when its prescriptions aren't followed. The California Court of Appeal in 2007, as a matter of first impression, agreed with the defendant landlord there that the law is in fact impermissibly vague because the information it covers, past evidence of an individual's character, say arrest records or unlawful detainer actions, might also implicate the regulations and penalties of another California law, the Consumer Credit Reporting Agencies Act. And therefore, there's enough ambiguity about what law applies when to render unconstitutional, the law that was at issue in Ortiz, the Second District Court of Appeal parted ways with the Ortiz Court, finding that the overlapping laws were not, as the court put it, positively repugnant, and thus that it was incumbent upon the court to reconcile and apply both. The state high court will now step in to resolve this conflict. But before they do, we'll hear a few few viewpoints today. First, from three attorneys who've advanced arguments in support of the plaintiffs here. We'll speak with two of the plaintiffs' Lead counsel Hunter Pyle of Hunter Pyle Law, who argued the case before the California Supreme Court a couple of weeks ago, and also Katha Worthman, partner at Feinberg, Jackson, Worthman, and Wasseau, and also Ted Merman, co founder and executive director of the Public Good Law Center, also the director of the Cal Berkeley Law's Center for Consumer Law and Economic Justice. Then we'll be joined by Montserrat Miller of Arnold Golden Gregory, who regularly advises employer clients on employee onboarding and background screening compliance issues. She'll explain why, in her view, the two laws here conflict in significant ways that cause confusion and no small amount of litigation for those who both provide and utilize background screenings. Before hearing from our guest, though, let me first remind you of a couple of housekeeping issues. One, don't forget that as of a few weeks ago, our program can now be found on iTunes and on the podcast app on iOS devices. You can find it there by searching for the weekly appellate report or also searching for the Daily Journal. Your clicks, subscribes, and reviews are most appreciated. And of course, as always, attorneys tuning into the program are entitled to one hour of California CLE credit for having listened to the show. To receive that, please find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Without any further preamble then, we have three folks here ready to put in a good word for the Investigative Consumer Reporting Agencies Act. First, Hunter Pyle of Hunter Pyle Law in Oakland. Hunter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And we have also Katha Worthman from Feinberg, Jackson, Worthman and Wasso. Thank you. And finally, Ted Merman of the Public Good Law Center and Director of UC Berkeley Law's Center for Consumer Law and Economic Justice. Ted, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thanks. It's good to be back. Okay. So, um, Hunter and Ted, um, you, you argued this case before the High Court last week. I think you've been a lead attorney on it for some time now. a, It's one that certainly generated quite a bit of attention, judging if only from the number of amicus briefs filed in the case. We'll dig into why it's generated so much attention. First, maybe we could get a bit of context on the statutes at issue here and that so there are or two, the one I just mentioned, the Investigative Consumer Reporting Agencies Act, we'll refer to it as the Investigative Act, and also the Consumer Credit Reporting Agencies Act. The question or the problem here is what happens when those acts might overlap? Does that render one of them an in- impermissibly vague? Uh, so perhaps to start, what are these acts? That They obviously both um, protect consumers, um, they deal with agencies that report information about consumers to folks, set requirements, assessed penalties. Hunter, what, what are the main differences between these two statutes?
1: Well, they are two different statutes, and they have been since 1975 when they were enacted. The Credit Act, it covers um, consumer reports that bear on credit worthiness. So obviously a credit report, um, but also information regarding bankruptcies, criminal records, that sort of thing. The investigative act covers reports that bear on character um, and so therefore there is some overlap between the acts by design which we'll get into a little bit later the acts do have different requirements the credit act for example in the employment context requires that an employer can only run a credit report for certain specific types of um, employment positions And it has to give notice and explain why it's allowed to um, run the check before it can run the check. And then the investigative act has a two-step process. It requires written notice that the employer is going to run the check and then written authorization from the subject of the check before the check can can be run.
0: What, what are some of those elements of, of character that could be reported as opposed to, with the Credit Reporting Act, just things more kind of numerical, like a credit score and a credit capacity, basically? What are those sort of character elements that could be reported?
1: Well, basically, any piece of information that bears on character. So, for example, arrest records, motor vehicle records, bankruptcy records, history of, you know, tenancy um whether the person has had, had has had issues there before but the scope of the act is is broad so it would be any information that was bearing on a person's character reputation background that sort of thing
0: and as you, uh, you know, alluded to we'll get into sort of the ways in which character information could Blend in with credit worthiness information and how the two could overlap a bit. But first, let's talk about uh, Eileen Connor, the plaintiff here. Keitha, uh, who is Ms. Connor? What exactly happened here that brought her to bring suit based on the uh, Investigative Act?
2: Ms. Connor is one of several hundred bus drivers and school bus driver aides who worked for First Group Corporation uh, Transport Company, which is a school bus company. And she uh, lives in Palm Springs. She's a bus driver's aide. Uh, Before that, she was a nun um, who volunteered in the Caribbean and um, also worked in a canning plant and then came to work as a bus driver's aide. And the case arose when she and all of her fellow employees had background checks run on them without their consent and without the company following the requirements of the Investigative Reporting Act. So specifically what happened was First Group took over uh, Laidlaw, School bus company, and when it did so, it um, sent uh, forms asking for permission for um, to run additional background checks. The school bus drivers and aides, including Ms. Connor, had already had background checks run on them, but uh, First Group wanted to run additional checks. And rather than waiting um, to see if they received consent, First Group went ahead and ran the checks anyway. So out of that, um, over 1,100 school bus drivers and aides. Filed suit for violation of the Investigative Reporting Act, uh, and it was filed in a number of different courts and eventually consolidated in L.A. Superior. So it's not a class action; it's a mass action. But and Eileen Connor is one of the bellwether plaintiffs in that action.
0: At the trial court level, the the court they're held against plaintiffs, and I guess Miss Connor, based upon as I understand it, a an appellate ruling, uh, the name of Ortiz that instructs and in, when interpreting the. The Investigative Act. That if there are circumstances where that Act and, and the the competing or the the, the Consumer Act, where, where they might both apply, that creates void for vagueness situation, such that the IC the Investigative Act can't be permissibly Im- imposed. Uh, t- tell me a bit about Ortiz Hunter. What what is the is, is that basically the holding that those two acts can't both apply at the same time?
1: Right. So Ortiz is a two thousand and seven case out of the fourth appellate district in which the court held that that the legislature had intended for information to fall under either the credit act or the investigative act but not both and because tenant screening reports could go to both credit and character the court found that it couldn't figure out which bucket to put the tenant screening reports in and therefore it held that the investigative act was unconstitutionally void for vagueness. And then in our case, Judge Wiley in the L.A. Superior Court, while he stated several times that he was surprised by the Ortiz holding, he simply concluded that he was bound by it and had no choice but to follow it. And then we, of course, appealed to the second District Court of Appeal and prevailed there in the Connor
0: case. Just a couple more points uh, about that Ortiz decision. Keith, the uh, idea or the, the position that the court took there that these statutes were designed not to overlap, to only deal situations that uh, in one that the other could not deal with, has some basis in the original structure of the laws, right? Because the the Investigative Act believe as originally written only would apply where the information sought was sought by means of a personal interview with with folks as opposed to the consumer act which explicitly excluded any information gained by dint of personal interviews so at least as originally written they they could not overlap right
3: well, that
2: is not something that we agree with, but it doesn't. It doesn't change the outcome in our case. It's true that, the at least the vast majority of the time, the two statutes were not going to overlap because the Investigative Act, as originally enacted, covered reports that were based solely on personal interviews. Uh, but because of some technicalities, for example, information that. Included arrest reports would still potentially have have fallen under both Um, Or you could have had a background check company that ran one type of report under the investigative act and uh, Based on personal interviews and a type of report based on public records That would have fallen under the credit act. There's never been anything in the statutes that says that they were designed or intended to be explicitly exclusive so you know whether or not Ortiz is right about that. It in the the justice in that case inferred that from the text of the statutes, not from anything explicit in them.
0: As, as you say, the you know that that barrier maybe wasn't one hundred percent secure between preventing any sort of overlap. But in nineteen ninety eight, there was an amendment to the Investigative Act that made it so there was probably going to be more overlap. I th- believe uh, Hunter that change was making it so information sought could be governed by that act, even if it wasn't sought via personal interview, right?
1: Right, exactly. So that broadened the scope of the investigative act significantly. So everyone agrees that after 1998, there was significant overlap between the two acts.
0: Now, one one other thing, besides Ortiz, has has there been much treatment since two thousand seven of this question in in the courts? In reading the uh, original defendant's brief here, they they do cite sort of a, a line of cases. How how much has this question come up?
2: Uh, I'll I'll answer that. Oh, um, okay. There were yeah, it was quiet for a while. There were no decisions following Ortiz on this particular aspect of it. Um, the void for vagueness aspect of it for a long time. And then two um, federal courts um, did go ahead and and follow that. One was called Roe and one is called Moran. Moran is now pending on appeal at the um, Ninth Circuit, um, pending the outcome of our Supreme Court um, decision. And then um, since our... uh, the second district um, appellate court went our way, there's a federal court case that actually follows follows our case and predicts that the California Supreme Court will rule with us. So there's not, there's not a significant line. It was quiet for a long time, and then a few federal courts followed it um, in interpreting California law. Okay. But now it looks to be going the other way.
0: That's Ortiz and and the the trial court's approach here following it. We'll we'll get in now um, to the arguments that uh, Hunter, Keitha, and Teddy have presented to the court uh, in briefs and and oral arguments as to why Ortiz was was wrong and the trial court was wrong. Here also, as Hunter, you mentioned, the the second appellate district uh, agrees that Ortiz doesn't demand this statute be struck down as as too void. So one central theme that seems to come up in all the brief supporting your position is that this idea that statutes might overlap a bit, and so there might be some redundancy between statutes that govern issues in the same, you know, subject matter area of law, um, it's not particularly unusual. There's there's statutory overlap fairly commonly in a lot of different areas of law. Hunter, walk me through that that idea.
1: Okay, so the basic concept is that that um, just as you said, it is not uncommon for statutes to overlap we see it in employment law regularly we see it in environmental law um, on a regular basis we see it in criminal law and other areas of the law as well so there's a line of cases that includes both u.s supreme court and california supreme court cases that deal with this situation and the basic rule is that um, so long as there is not what's called positive repugnancy, then the role of the court is to apply whatever the higher standard is as satisfying both statutes. So let me unpack that just a little bit. I think of positive repugnancy as you'd have to have two statutes that were irreconcilable or one statute commanded what another one prohibited, that sort of thing. But absent that, if you have what we have in this case, which is a situation where if first had complied with the investigative act, it also would have met the requirements of the credit act, then there's no problem. You just apply the higher standard as satisfying both statutes, and there's no issue. Uh, Where it gets a little bit tricky is what we're really talking about here is the doctrine of implied repeal. We're not talking about the void for vagueness argument, which is another analysis. And that just looks at whether the language of the statute is reasonably clear in terms of what it requires.
0: On that point, Ted, I wanted to to bring you in as to the the implied repeal idea. In in the Court of Appeal opinion and a lot of the briefing, the the focus is on the void for vagueness idea. Certainly that's That's why the defendants challenge the Investigative Act, basically saying if their particular actor is seeking some information that could bear on a person's character, but also creditworthiness, you know, it's too confusing to tell which of the acts applies, and so that implies void, uh, implies vagueness. But as you write, the, the 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 real question here, kind of disguised by that vagueness argument, is just whether or not there was an implied repeal of the Investigative Act based on that amendment that created additional overlap. Why, why is that the right focus, Ted? Well,
4: <clears throat> the void for vagueness focus was, was wrong from the beginning, uh, and that's really the fundamental problem with Ortiz, uh, that really you have here two statutes, and in any circumstance where you have two statutes, it's the job of a court, as it's the job of an employer or a compliance counsel to reconcile them, to apply both of them uh, if it's possible to do that. And that's, you know, the the, the standard of uh, implied repeal to to give you uh, a sense of how that would work. The defendants amicus in this case, the Consumer Data Industry uh, Association, came up with six areas that they thought of what they called conflict between the two statutes. And in fact, <laughs> there there was no irreconcilable conflict, even in any of those. For example, <clears throat> they said, well, The Credit Act requires that records be retained permanently. The Investigative Act says that records need be retained for only three years. But obviously, if both acts apply, as they do here, then a business can retain its records permanently and thereby satisfy both statutes. The same with, uh, you know, under the Credit Act, a a consumer may submit a hundred-word statement of dispute. Under the Investigative Act, the statement can be 500 words. So where both acts apply, you allow a 500-word statement. There are no irreconcilable conflicts here. What happened in Ortiz and and you know this was the big mistake at at a, at a fork in the road was to apply the wrong standard. If you apply the implied repeal doctrine, then you reconcile both of these statutes, and there's it's really not difficult to do. The problem of you know the the void for vagueness standard is. Hunter mentioned, uh, uh, you know, what a person of common intelligence would think when when faced with a particular uh, statute. It's extremely rarely exercised. In our research, we looked the California Supreme Court has in its history faced 64 challenges uh, to a statute as void for vagueness. It held 53 of the statutes. Of the 11 that it struck down, 10 were in the criminal context where void for vagueness really has some teeth. Uh, There's only one civil case in the history of the California Supreme Court where it applied uh, the uh, void for vagueness to strike down a statute. And that was in Perez versus Sharp with a landmark uh, interracial marriage case. Very far from uh, what was at issue here, uh, which was, as you mentioned, uh, a case of, of implied repeal, a case of reconciling two statutes, which, frankly, it's not that difficult to reconcile.
0: Just to jump ahead for a second, it did, did that idea come up at oral argument that the right sort of prism to look through here is the implied repeal one and not the idea of, of, of vagueness, Ted?
4: It did. I don't know that it was labeled clearly as such, and certainly Hunter mentioned it. Uh, the, the justices seemed more interested in the outcome than in labeling one doctrine or, or another, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that they they sensed in their judicial bones that uh, when you face more than one statute, you reconcile them. Uh, and, you know, I, I pointed out there that, the, you know, the, recently even the, the court had faced a situation, uh, several situations where the statutes were in fact irreconcilable, where venue was going to be either in county A under one statute or county B under another statute. And there, uh, you really, you can't apply both. You have to figure out which one applies. In that case, they said the more the, the later enacted statute, the more specific statute uh, would apply. But in, even in that case, you don't throw out <laughs> the other statute; you just apply it in circumstances where it applies. In this case, the court did mention that if that, even if you they they were to uh, apply the later enacted and more specific statute here, that would be the Investigative Act, not the Credit Act. So there's really no grounds for the defendants' <laughs> claim and the Ortiz court's claim in this case.
0: Okay, uh, Kate, I could I ask you? Um, one theme in the in the appellate ruling is that you your courts should reconcile statutes that overlap, but only if still there remains some space in each statute that only that statute can cover so there are different situations that only one can reach and the other cannot so it, is that the case here that th- there is some overlap with each of these laws can reach spaces that the other can't the others cannot
2: right one of the ways you you evaluate whether or not there has potentially been an implied repeal in situations where there's a conflict and here we would argue there's not even a conflict, but even if, if there is, you look to see if the statutes cover uh, specific situations that the other don't reach. And here, both the Investigative Reports Act and the Credit Reports Act cover specific areas that the other don't reach, so it doesn't reach. So the C- Consumer Credit Reporting Act, for example, covers reports that specifically concern Credit information that is factual that's obtained from a credit reporting agency, so like an Equifax report or t r w report that you know that tells your credit score, for example, that's only covered by the um, Credit Reporting Act and ICRA, the Investigative Reporting Act, is still the only statute that covers reports that are conducted solely based on on per- personal interviews. So, mm. if a private investigator calls up and does an interview um, and writes something up based on that, that would be covered by ICRA, by the Investigative Reporting Agencies Act only, not by the other.
0: Okay. Um, one other point that was interesting to flag is there has have been. You know the use of legislative history and legislative intent put forth by both sides here. Um, Hunter, I, I do know in in your brief you mentioned that the most recent amendment, if you do look into the history, you know, would would certainly not suggest that there was any intent to cause some sort of repeal, but instead to sort of bump up improve consumer protections. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, you have the 1998 amendments that, as we've already discussed were intended to expand the scope of the Investigative Act, because basically the, the agencies that were running these acts had shifted from mainly personal interviews <clears throat> to using public records like criminal records and bankruptcy records and so on. Um, and so the Investigative Act uh, was pretty anachronistic at that point. So the legislature expanded the scope of that act which has more substantial penalties than the credit act in order to protect California consumers. So that indicates really that the legislature took the investigative act seriously and wanted to expand its scope. And then in 2011, the legislature expanded the scope, or I'm sorry, the legislature um, uh, amended the credit act in response to the situation where after the great recession employers were using credit checks to deny employment applications and so the legislature really beefed up the credit act in order to limit the situations in which employers could use credit reports in employment in the employment context so both of those amendments we contend show that the legislature continues to believe that both the investigative act and the credit act play very important overlapping but yet still somewhat distinct roles.
0: Just a a couple of uh, maybe counter-arguments of of sorts, Keitha. We we discussed this one a bit already, the idea that as originally enacted, the the statutes either could not overlap or very rarely would. I know also the uh, defendants have cited that When these statutes were passed in the 1970s, it was around the same time a federal law, the Fair Credit Reporting Act also was passed, that being one single piece of legislation, these being two that seem to cover the ground that the the federal law does. How good of an argument do you think that is that the original intent may have been for these not to overlap and that perhaps suggesting there would have been some implied repeal when, when they have begun to?
2: Well, let's say that they, they were intended to, to be exclusive, um, which again, we, we don't think that they were. There's nothing that prevents the legislature from amending a statute later to make it expand to other categories. And in the course of doing so, make it overlap with, with other laws. And as, uh, Hunter mentioned and Ted mentioned, I think, too, this, that happens all the time in so many fields of law, environmental law, um, healthcare law, employment law. The legislature is continually adjusting what the laws need to be in response to new situations. So regardless of what the laws were meant to cover when they were originally passed in 1998, it became very clear that they were intended to overlap. The um, uh, justices at the um, Second District Court of Appeal were very interested in, in that point that since 1998, it had been very clear and the justices at the um, Supreme Court also seemed interested in that issue.
0: And I'm not sure exactly how strong of a legal argument this is, but I just noted in, in reading through the filings that it, it does seem fairly inevitable that there will understandably be some confusion on the part of folks seeking consumers' information, landlords, employers, You know, when you're seeking some piece of information from a person's past that could potentially uh, suggest either Character or creditworthiness is the response? um, Hunter, just that just follow both laws and and you'll be you'll be fine. And that's sort of the end of it?
1: Well, like many areas of the law, there's not only a single law that applies. And anytime you have more than one law that might apply to a situation, you have to do the analysis and ask, does the first law apply? If yes, then follow that, but don't end your analysis there. Does the second law also apply? And one of the things that we were able to provide the court that I think was helpful was a series of secondary sources, a series of practice guides from that are out there that exist for employers to look at. And the practice guides all say the same thing, which is you comply with both. Be sure to comply with both. So, while it might not be the simplest analysis in the world, it's not a particularly complicated analysis.
2: I would just add uh, just uh, one addition on that point um, to to build on it. Justice Manella at the um, Court of Appeal below made the point that it's something we're all very familiar with. If you're going to make changes to your house, you have to get a permit. And if you're going to get a permit to put a second story um, or you also want to put in a chimney, it could be that you need to go to multiple different offices to get multiple types of permits for the construction that you're doing. So it's something that that happens all the time.
0: Ted, uh, your group's uh, amicus filing, as as many good amicus priests do, really sort of zoomed out the scope here and suggested that the implications of this court's ruling; it were to say, continue to follow Ortiz, would be be pretty significant in areas of law all across the state, many different areas. What uh, what 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 are the stakes here? Why is it is the question so critical? You know, judging from the fact that so many amicus filings were submitted, what uh, what what would be what would happen if this Ortiz's idea of sort of uh, void for overlap were were adopted?
4: Well. As we've mentioned, there are uh, overlapping laws that apply in uh, what I would say every volume of the California Code. Uh, you know, our Amicus brief was filed on behalf of a pretty broad coalition of uh, of groups, including uh, consumer protection groups, housing uh, groups, public health organizations, employment groups, and then there were there were twenty five other <laughs> uh, organizations uh that that filed uh as well so we had 33 nonprofit organizations in uh in support of ms connor and then the attorney general of the state as well in the separate briefs uh just and much of the focus i would say there were two major areas of importance that these briefs were underscoring the first is just what you've mentioned which is uh let's look at what happens if void for overlap were an actual principle uh, or the one-law-at-a-time rule. And, you know, how how would you uh, – to pick a, a, a law that I'm very familiar with, if you took the uh, California Fair Debt Collection Practices Act and uh, you said, well, you're a debt buyer and there's this new law, the Fair Debt Buying Practices Act, they both apply to you. Uh, but under this act, uh, under this interpretive principle, I guess you'd have to knock one of them out. <laughs> and and – and, and which one would that be and why on earth would you do that? The legislature obviously having identified that even though, uh, you know, you're a, a debt collector, you are also a debt buyer. And and this particular type of actor is someone who needs to uh, be reined in, 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 a, in response to this particular set of abuses that we've seen. I mean, that's the way that legislation works. One of the things that uh, defendants argued in their brief was that, they they had no way to know that more than one act would apply to them because the earlier act <laughs> uh wasn't amended to say that there was going to be a later act and and that's that's just not the way the legislative process works uh and and would really fundamentally undermine uh I think that process another reason that I think the the case is important it hasn't come up yet but it's I you know as a, a consumer protection lawyer, indeed, as the, the new interim director of, a, of the Center for Consumer Law and Economic Justice at the Berkeley Law School, I, I, am, I am duty bound <laughs> to mention the importance of the investigative act. Uh, and this is something that the attorney general really emphasized. Identity theft is the single most common consumer problem in the United States. Every year, it tops the FTC's complaint list. It's so important that they have a separate category for it. <laughs> they don't even include it with other types of complaint. Every year, 20 million people, so more than one out of every 15 Americans, has their identity stolen. And thieves open new credit card accounts, they make purchases, they incur debts. Uh, the average victim, in order to untangle that mess, takes months or years, 175 hours on average, uh, with consumer reporting agencies to try to just get their credit and their background straight uh, and accurate. Again, the annual loss attributed to ID theft in the United States is $15 billion. And you take that, you look at errors that occur uh, by consumer reporting agencies. About one in four Americans identifies a material error in her consumer report when she checks. And you see that the the kind of disclosures, the, the more effective disclosures of, of a, a single Doc standalone document of a, of a writing acknowledging receipt by the the person who is who is being subject to an investigative act report. Uh, they prompt us, all of us, to examine uh, reports that may wrongfully be depriving us of jobs or of of credit or of housing. It's a vitally important law that that really is at stake here, and we wanted to make sure the court was aware of that.
0: Just one last one to close. Hunter, and, and anyone else can feel free to jump in. How, how did you feel the court responded to arguments on the scores that we've been talking? How do you think they were receptive, uh, seeming to understand the import of this case and, and your arguments?
1: We were hardened by the court's questions at oral argument. They seemed to be focusing on this question of why wouldn't they just apply both laws since there was no irreconcilable difference between them. And that's certainly what we were hoping they would look at. Um, They didn't seem to be too concerned about the void for vagueness argument, because really that argument collapses when you realize that information can fall under both acts. So uh, we were heartened, we thought. And frankly, we discussed this afterwards. We, We just feel very lucky to have a... Supreme Court that's as thoughtful and engaged as we have. So,
0: We'll go ahead and, and wait for a thoughtful and uh, engaged uh, opinion here to come down in the next uh, couple of months. We'll leave it there for now. Thanks so much, Gigi, for joining me. Uh, Hunter, Pyle, Hunter Pyle from Hunter Pyle Law. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Brian. And Katha Worthman from Feinberg Jackson Worthman and Wasso. Thanks for being on the podcast.
2: Thank you. Great to talk to you.
0: And Ted Merman of the Public Good Law Center and director of UC Berkeley Law's Center for Consumer Law and Economic Justice. Uh, Thanks so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. Montserrat Miller, a partner with Arnold Golden Gregory in Washington, D.C., and regularly advises employer clients on the employee onboarding process and background screening compliance issues. She's here to speak about the confusion that these overlapping California statutes create for such clients. Ms. Miller, welcome to the podcast.
3: Thank you, Brian. Thanks for uh, inviting me to, to join your podcast today.
0: Okay, so maybe, maybe first to, to start out with, in this particular context, when you're advising employer clients in the, the onboarding process and they might be looking to, to screen potential employees' backgrounds. Tell me about how, how they go about bumping into the particular law here, the Investigative Consumer Reporting Agencies Act in California. What sorts of things are they looking for? How does that process work?
3: So when you're talking about a background check for employment screening purposes, what an employer has to consider is not only what state consumer reporting law may be applicable, such as in the case of the Connor matter and what we're going to be talking about today, the Investigative Consumer Reporting Agencies Act. You also have to, as an employer, consider what are my compliance obligations under federal law, and that is the Fair Credit Reporting Act. So there is there are compliance requirements, obligations, both with respect to notices or disclosures that fall on both the employer and the background screening agency, who's provided that report to the employer for employment screening purposes, under both the federal Fair Credit Reporting Act as well as any state laws, like in this case, what we're going to be talking about today with ICRA and then the Credit Reporting Agencies Act.
0: What what is the sort of information that triggers the uh, Investigative Act, the California Act? It's, it's it revolves around kind of character, background, traits, right?
3: right so the split between both the investigative consumer reporting agencies act which goes to character uh, personal uh, reputation mode of living and then the credit reporting agencies act consumer credit reporting agencies act which it would have been helpful if they had come up with a shorter title <laughs> but the difference between the two really revolves around and it, at this point in time is is some of the information that is being provided in a consumer report or in California, as they're called, is, is an investigative consumer reporting act, investigative consumer report. Is it consumer or is it character information versus credit information? And that's the essential distinction between the two statutes. Whether one one revolves around character information and the other credit information, and then you have to consider. When you look at the report as an employer, when the employer looks at the report that is furnished to them by a background screening company, it's going to contain a host of information depending on what type of check an employer has requested from their background screening vendor. Oftentimes, which was the case here in the Connor matter, it is going to include criminal history information, and that's where the rub comes in with this case is Can criminal history information be considered both character as well as credit information, thereby triggering compliance obligations and responsibilities under both? But more broadly, if it were as simple as saying, well, I am just going to, as an employer, request a credit report for employment screening purposes and presumably... That would fall under the Consumer Credit Reporting Agencies Act because it would just be information relating to credit. If it's information relating to just character, it could be, and that's where it gets tougher because the way that it's the Investigative Consumer Reporting Agencies Act has shaken out is that what you might think isn't credit information that will be covered by the consumer credit reporting agencies act actually is like criminal history information um in certain situations employment verification information might be considered both and that's where the rub comes in which is why employers at some levels have difficulty with respect to understanding what their obligations are under both statutes
0: the issue that you cite is the the potential for the p- kinds of sought information to seemingly bleed across the the categorical divide here between the two acts and implicate both character and uh, credit worthiness is I think something that was centrally at issue in in the the main precedent being dealt with here the 2007 case Ortiz versus Lion Management Company I believe there the issue was uh, unlawful detainer actions. That were looked into, right. and whether those could be indicative of character and creditworthiness as well. It certainly, seems like they could implicate both. And, and so, there, what essentially was was the holding that's being referenced. Is it that because the the acts, because that piece of information could fall under both acts and, and, and trigger the requirements and penalties of both, that they created too much confusion, and, and, and therefore the the particular. Act here, the investigative act, was was impermissibly vague then?
3: That's right. So in Ortiz and then Trujillo, but talking about Ortiz, the issue was unlawful detainers and it was in the context of, of tenant screening. And the issue essentially revolved around, okay, we have information here that can fairly be said to be both character information and also creditworthiness information, information that goes to one's. Uh, creditworthiness. And so when you have a situation like that, you can, as a, as whether it's a landlord or as an employer that has obligations under both the investigative and the the credit acts, which do you follow? So in Ortiz, the issue was and the court you know the court held that you can't enforce either because you're not given, notice as to which statute actually applies. And so it goes to a discussion as to due process if as a landlord or as an employer, I don't know which law I need to follow. It puts me in the untenable position of not knowing what my compliance obligations are and potentially leads me down a rabbit hole where I am going to violate one of the laws. I just don't know which one. So it's fundamentally unfair to that employer or to that landlord to put them in that situation. So you need clarity between the two statutes. And as we mentioned earlier, the problem we're having here is that you're having criminal history information or unlawful detainers, which are viewed as both, and therefore, which applies, is it the investigative or the the credit act?
0: Okay, yeah, you mentioned another case there, Trujillo has... Has there been much of a a line of cases following Ortiz? It it, it seems like the briefing differs as to how much of California jurisprudence has sort of fallen in line with that case, or whether it's just sort of one instance of one court finding that way.
3: Not a significant amount, because you have the Ortiz case, uh, and then the Trujillo, and those were both in 2007. And so there hasn't been a, a significant amount of case law in this particular
0: area. I wanted to just unpack a little bit of the here employer-defendant argument. One piece that seems pretty central is that there was an original intent behind the act, this the investigative act. Um, as compared to the, the credit act, um, some original intent by the California legislature to have the two not overlap mm. at all. I understand that they were adopted the, around the same time as the, the federal parallel statute, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which is you know, one statute that kind of co- covers all this ground, whereas these two in California seem to cover the, the, the same ground. And do, Are you familiar with you know, how that intent argument goes and how these statutes kind of came to be adopted around the same time and why they were split into two and, and, and how that argument uh, follows?
3: So in a very general sense, my my understanding of the legislative history and the intent is that they were, by they, I mean the investigative and the credit acts, were intended to be separate statutes covering separate matters. One would be credit, one would be character information, and that was the intent all along. What threw things into a tailspin, if you will, which is not a legal word, is that was the 1998 amendment, which removed language about requiring personal interviews, meaning that the information needed to be collected by personal interviews, and that language was removed and from the investigative act, but no corollary action, if you will, was taken with respect to the credit act to bring the two into line and, in my opinion, maintain their independence. And so from my read of the legislative history, it does appear that the investigative and the credit acts, were in fact intended to be separate statutes and that you each would apply in a certain setting. But now you have this situation like here with the first student case where criminal history information is considered to be both credit and character, and it's drawing both in, which was never the intent of the original act. So... It is throwing a monkey wrench into how an employer, a landlord, or, or anyone else who would be requesting a report from a background screening vendor would have notice as to what obligations they would have to follow.
0: Just for a moment, could, could you sort of speak to the, I guess, the, the size of that that monkey wrench from clients you've worked with dealing with these two statutes? To what extent is it perplexing or vexing figuring out the which law will apply to this particular sort of information sought?
3: It? So it's interesting because he, obviously we're talking about employment and employers here, but there is a larger universe if you will of players that are affected and that includes the consumer reporting agencies as well which are the background screening companies so under the investigative act they're called investigative consumer reporting agencies under the fair the federal fair credit reporting act they're just called consumer reporting agencies and under the fair credit reporting act a consumer reporting agency might provide a consumer report on an on an individual For a permissible purpose that covers both character and credit information so there's no such distinction in the fcra necessarily between the two i mean there's an there is a distinction but not in the way that the california statutes uh, create a distinction between the two in that different a different statute applies depending on the information that's provided but when you look at how big that monkey wrench is, you have to consider that it's not only landlords who are affected by this or property management companies because they're the ones requesting background check reports on tenants. It's also employers when they can, when they request background checks on individuals uh, for employment screening purposes, and it's also the consumer reporting agencies, the background screening companies themselves, who furnish those reports because under both the investigative and the credit acts, there are different obligations that flow to both background screening vendors, employers, and landlords. and so it, is, it really is critical for them to know what in California, which is the largest state last time I checked, uh, which law applies to California residents. So the universe is bigger than just employers.
0: That makes sense no. One point that was, was stressed by the, the Court of Appeals here and it's, it's parting ways with Ortiz was that it's the, it's the responsibility of the courts to you know, whether or not the intent was here for these two laws not to overlap, even if that subsequent 1998 amendment created situations in which they do, so long as the, the, the laws aren't positively repugnant, I think is language pulled from a U.S. Supreme Court case. Courts are supposed to a- apply them and as a sort of doctrinal matter, that does seem like a fairly high bar, You know, showing that the, the two laws cannot be recon, reconciled. Um, what are your thoughts on, on that?
3: So whether it's positively repugnant or not, based on the case law, the way that I look at it is more of from a practical perspective, as, a, as an FCRA practitioner myself, mm-hmm. advising employers landlord, property management companies, background screening companies, I look at it as do we have two statutes that do appear to conflict with each other depending on the type of information that you provide. And in practice, when you provide these reports for whatever the permissible purpose might be, they're going to include all of that information. So you're not going to have necessarily a report that has just credit information, which in California has its own restrictions with respect to the use of credit information and and advising the data subject, if you will, or the consumer why the credit information is being requested. You're not going to have just a credit report. You're not going to have just a report that includes criminal history information. You're not going to have just a report that includes education or employment verification all of the elements that go into a background check report are included in one report. So that distinction between two statutes gets very confusing and complicated to navigate. And so essentially what you have to do is, as an employer is when when you have differing laws, you essentially will always take the highest standard and apply that. And so that's all good and well with respect to what you choose to do, but then the other issue that comes in relates to, let's say, that you are found to be in violation of either the investigator or the credit because you didn't provide the appropriate notice. Like for instance, with uh, the Investigative Act, there is an obligation on employers to provide not only a disclosure to the the job applicant about the fact that a background check is being done, but also get their written authorization when you go over to the credit act, you have that same notice requirement, but no written authorization requirement. So that right there is essential to, okay, which, which of the two do I need to follow? So you're gonna follow the one that's more stringent and where the rubber really meets the road for employers and why this is such a big deal on some levels is because of the enormous amount of litigation that is rampant in this industry with against both employers and background screening companies and landlords, property management companies for failure to comply with the California statutes. And even the damages are different under both the investigative and the credit act. So it does matter when you're, you know, whether it's, repugnant or not under case law, it does from a practical perspective really matter to an employer or a background screener to understand which law they have to follow.
0: what what sort of wrong with the the position or the 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 court's view, the court of appeals view here that employers, for instance, couldn't do what you described follow both laws. In other words, where they overlap, take the the more stringent standard, say the the requirement that a notice be be returned and signed. Why, why couldn't the courts reconcile the, the laws that way, and so individuals or their parties bound by it would just follow the, the more stringent aspects of, of the laws in the, in the areas that they did overlap?
3: Because when you look at the intent of the two statutes, which appears to be clear that they were meant to be independent, it is fundamentally unfair to make an employer or a background screening company essentially take an educated guess as to which statute they need to follow. And so you're just hedging your bet as to which law you think might apply and trying to do your best, even when you might be comparing apples to oranges. So from a fairness perspective, and from a due process perspective, it, it, there's, there's a contradiction between the statutes. I think that is clear. No one is arguing that. And so the question is, is it because of that, should should they not be enforced? And so what I would say is I would rather see clarity as to which applies rather than taking an educated guess on behalf of a client of mine. And we're all essentially hoping for the, the best in an environment where there is a significant amount of litigation for noncompliance with the statute, even for technical violations.
0: I know one other argument advanced by folks on the the plaintiff side of this case is that this is not the only area of law where, where statutes may overlap. You know certainly uh, in, in the environmental law context, there are plenty of laws that bear on an, an individual's action, and yeah, in, in the labor law context, often there are overlapping protections for folks. So you know I guess is the the fact that the laws overlap here kind of unique or also you know relatedly. If the court were to say, hey, these laws overlap, and so we have to strike this one down, would that make vulnerable laws in other areas of you know, the jurisprudence that were these two, say, environmental statutes conflict? You know, They have to be struck down as well. Would that cause those sorts of problems? I think the the California Attorney General weighed in here to voice that particular uh, worry.
3: In it, I would say that, in my opinion, the issue here without knowing all of the details about the environmental or other or labor law or other laws that may conflict. It, the To me, the issue here is that we're not talking about one or two differences between them. We're talking about some fundamental differences between what is required of an employer, of a background screening company with respect to the reports that they use and that they provide that go to what they actually have to do. And so it's not one or two. I mean, there are several differences from the permissible purpose of the report to what has to be printed on the report, what the background screening company might have to say about its privacy practices to how you capture the, or whether you capture written authorization to in my mind, there are enough differences that I am just looking at this, these two statutes, and saying there are inherent differences and conflicts which do lead to confusion for within the industry and with respect to background checks. And when you're trying to promote compliance with the law to protect consumers because that's what you want to do with these consumer reporting laws that's what these are at the end of the day whether it's the fcra or the investigative or credit acts you want to protect consumers you're not making it easy for the parties trying to do that when you have two statutes that conflict with each other so fundamentally
0: okay i wouldn't Last one, just to close, uh, you mentioned to me before we started recording that the the outcome here is being closely watched by the industry upon which it will principally bear. What are the the stakes here and and why is the outcome here? Why is it so significant?
3: The stakes are high because whenever you have something that touches California, it matters to the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. And so would be one response to that. And the second would be that there really is a significant amount of litigation in this space today against both employers, landlords, not both, but against employers, landlords, and background screening companies for violations of these statutes of the Fair Credit Reporting Act. So the more clarity that everybody has, since we're all striving to be compliant with whatever the law is. The more clarity that is provided and certainty, the better it is for all parties involved.
0: We'll, we'll, we'll wait and see then on how the what sort of clarity is provided by the California Supreme Court, but we'll, we'll leave it there. Uh, for now, Ms. Montserrat Miller, partner with Arnell Golden and Gregory in Washington, D.C. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
3: You're welcome. Thank you, Brian.
0: With that, our program for June 15th, 2018 is complete. I'd like to tender sincere thanks once more to all four of my guests, Hunter Pyle, Keith Worthman, Ted Merman, and Montserrat Miller. Let's thank my production staff here, principally Nick Perez, and also our editor, David Houston. And of course, thank you for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. Don't forget that one hour of CLE credit can be yours. Simply find a short true-false test on the DailyJournal.com page where this program appears. So don't forget to find us, like us, click us, subscribe to us, and rate us on iTunes or the podcast app on iOS devices. Brian Cardell. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.